1961, notoriously grouchy author P.L. Travers was on the verge of bankruptcy. She decided to finally take world-famous movie producer Walt Disney up on his long-standing offer to obtain the film rights to her famous novel, Mary Poppins. But Travers had demands, many of them, and Disney's vision was starting to shrink in the wake of her increasingly tedious problems with the impending production. But Travers was very protective of Mary Poppins due to the circumstances of her childhood that created her, and Disney was able to find the middle ground in the 2013 biopic Saving Mr. Banks. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Colton Jenkins. And this is Filmgasm. Welcome to the Filmgasm Podcast. Our brief foray into movies about movies, Realgasm, continues with a touching and somewhat sappy retelling of how Walt Disney Pictures obtained the film rights to one of their most beloved films, Mary Poppins, in 2013, Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, what was your experience with this movie prior to this podcast? Um, so I knew the movie was coming out. Um, this time it's not my dad. It's my grandma. She introduced me to Mary Poppins and she loves Mary Poppins. Um, but I mean, it's, it's hard not to love that movie. Um, and I remember, uh, they were visiting one year, I think for Christmas, I think, I don't remember what month this movie came out, but, um, we saw the trailer. We're like, Oh, we have to go see this. And I saw it in the theaters and I cried and I almost cried again. This rewatch, uh, beautiful movie. Um, I think Tom Hanks acts exactly like Walt Disney did. He's perfect casting. Um, he's just a really good sappy movie. It's very good. Yeah, I agree. I didn't think I was going to like this as much as I did. I, I saw this with my grandparents in 2013, my grandma also introduced me to Mary Poppins and I've loved that movie since I was a kid. It's, it's just so whimsical and wonderful. Hmm. And, uh, I remember I was the youngest person in the theater by a good 30, 40 years. <laughs> it was mostly <laughs> a lot of old folks and then me. And I just, I love true stories. I love movies about the history of films and, yeah. I didn't know there was a story behind the film rights to Mary Poppins, but there is a very touching story that admittedly was pretty uh, whitewashed in a way. Like there, a lot of the double dealings, a lot of the just bad vibes of Hollywood got cut out of this movie, which is probably a good thing. You're telling me that a Disney movie didn't tell the full story? I know, right? What a shock. That <laughs> Disney wanted Walt Disney to look like a saint. Who would have expected that? Uh, <laughs> uh, but ultimately, it is a sweet movie. It's, a, it's got a good message about just, you know, uh, just not being defined by your trauma and trying to find a way past it and, you know, using art as a way to move, move past a lot of darkness in yourself. And I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, it also kind of highlights on... Um writers you know like you could probably attest to this that a lot of writers put their traumas or just people that they care about into characters and themes of their own art which i really liked and also 
after watching this movie the first time, I was like, why is it called Saving Mr. Banks? It doesn't make any fucking sense. And then watching this movie and then watching Mary Poppins right after is crazy because you really do realize that this movie, Mary Poppins, is not about the kids or her. It's about the father. It's about Mr. Banks. 100% it is. Yeah. Mary Poppins in, in both movies returns to remind the father that there are more important things in life mm. than status, than money. It's, you know, you're, you're only a, you're only a father to your kids for so long. Yeah. And you got to make these moments count. Mary Poppins returns, by the way, is so good. I have one beef with Mary Poppins returns and it's the ending where Angela Lansbury is like the balloon lady and starts singing about balloons. And I'm like, that was so clearly supposed to be Julie Andrews. Yep. <laughs> but she said no, regrettably. She didn't want to take attention away from Emily Blunt's performance, which I respect. But also, like, we could have gotten Julie Andrews back. Yeah. It, was, oh, it was such a missed opportunity. Yeah. But um, Emily Blunt did such a good job. She did. She really did. That movie was underrated. I haven't actually seen it since I saw it at the movies. I haven't either. But, man, I remember her doing really good. Yeah, I remember liking it. I remember loving that Dick Van Dyke returned as the yep. <laughs> guy's son who now looks exactly like him. <laughs> yeah, it was it was cute. It was definitely made by people who cared about about the source mm. material, uh, which is good because Mary Poppins, according to this movie, has always been a film that is defined by its source material and the woman who made it. Uh, admittedly, a lot of her darkness was cut out of this movie, too. She had real family problems that did not make it into the film because... You got to care about this lady. Real family problems. <laughs> yeah, like her her relationship with her kids was pretty fucked up. Really? Yeah, I didn't want to go too much into it because I didn't want to take focus away from the movie. But uh, there was, yeah, there was some darkness there that would really push you off of her side. Oh, damn. But, uh, yeah, you know, Every movie about movies is going to have some seedy undercurrent that has to be removed in order for you to care about these characters. <laughs> or in the case of, you know, Shadow of the Vampire, they add seedy underbelly to make it more interesting. <laughs> yeah, or they say that he fed a bunch of people to vampires. And yeah. Okay. <laughs> Show me what you got, FW. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Um, so my question to you, this movie is very much about the world, the wonderful world of Disney and the whimsy that Disney has provided to the world, not rent free. That's for damn sure. <laughs> but for a, for a price that has gotten steadily more expensive over the years. But my question to you outside of their live action fair, outside of Pixar, outside of star Wars, outside of Marvel, outside of Indiana Jones, what is your favorite Disney movie? Um, it is a huge toss-up between three movies. Um, these three movies I hold a very special place for in my heart. Um, they all are connected to memories in my life. I'll go through them. There's Tarzan, which is a movie that me and my mom connected over very closely. Um, it's also just a really good movie. I love the story of Tarzan and it's probably one of the only movies that like whenever like the remake they made, I hated it because it wasn't the original legend of Tarzan was not a Disney remake. That was just another. Oh yeah, I know. I know. 
We I, I he hasn't done anything with Tarzan yet. You know, and I hope they don't because there isn't a lot of movies that me and my mom can bond over, but Tarzan is one of them. Um, and it's so good. Um, another one is um, Treasure Planet. I've talked about that movie a lot of times on this show. Um, I love pirates. I love space. And the theme of father and son in Treasure Planet is wonderful. I think it's some of the best I've seen in film because, you know, they care about each other, even, you know, it's rocky. And then also a message that I don't think a lot of people talk about in Treasure Planet um, is that it's okay to let go of your dreams if those dreams are, you know, destroying your life, which I think, you know, it's, you know, get rid of like toxic plans you have. Don't set yourself, you know, don't set yourself up so much that you like ruin yourself and you become unhappy. And the third one, I think anytime someone asks what my favorite Disney movie is, it's usually this one. Um, it's Pinocchio. Just because I think it's their second movie. And it just, it's so dark. It is so depressing. And I'm not like sitting here trying to be edgy, but that's so different coming from Disney it's just really interesting to see. And the story of Pinocchio is such so iconic and every scene in there is, you know, it like, I don't think there would be, this is controversial, but there wouldn't be a Disney without Pinocchio. Like, you know, Jiminy crickets in there. Um, the blue fairy wishing upon a star. Those are like Disney main mainstays. Um, and Pinocchio, I don't have any uh, connection to with my family with Pinocchio, but I, I don't, I'm sure my parents showed me Pinocchio, but like recently I found Pinocchio again and I rewatched it and realized how good of a film it was. And it's one of the movies that got me into film. It was the movie that got me into animation. Wow. Because it still looks good today. And I love how everything is like hand done. It's just in, I don't know, good messages, good lessons, all three of those movies. Yeah, that's my when I think of Disney, I think of those three. <laughs> that's great. I, I love the the variation there, how different those three films are, all from different decades of Disney as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's great. Uh, I'll I'll go ahead and spotlight three as well. I was going to spotlight two, but I, for the sake of of mirror, I want to want to spotlight three as well. Um, So. My number three is. A movie I grew up with, a movie that still just makes me smile and holds a special place in my heart, and that's The Jungle Book. Mm. The last movie Walt Disney personally worked on before he passed. Um, Yeah, it's so just charming and whimsical, and I, I just find it cute. I love the whole King Louie bit, you know. I yeah. love that he's... The way he ends up being a villain because he wants... He just wants Mowgli to show him how to make fire. It's like such a weird. <laughs> uh, and it's, I love the Bare Necessities song. It just brings me back to a simpler time in my life where I was just, you know, bobbing my head, enjoying a Disney movie. Um, Number two and my, my number one and two are pretty equal ground. I I, I find myself like if I had to pick a favorite, it really determined. It really depends on which day I'm asked this question, because these two movies are, in my opinion, the greatest films Disney has ever produced. First up, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. 
Oh, man. This is such an underrated, amazing masterpiece from Disney. It is. Yeah. 1996, right in the smack dab middle of their insane 90s run. And it's I think it because it came out between Pocahontas and Hercules, it got overshadowed. Mm. And then Toy Story also happened around that time. So like everyone was like, look at this computer and what it can do. So <laughs> there were things were different. All things the kids look the same. It's amazing. <laughs> this neighborhood's so weird and creepy. <laughs> um yeah, I, I love that. Uh Hunchback is insanely dark. It's about religious persecution. It's about yeah. ostracization, ostracizing somebody. <laughs> that's a, I don't even know if that's a real word. Is that, that's a hard word to say. Um, and our villain is a hyper-religious control freak who wants to destroy an entire group of people simply because he thinks they belong in hell. I'd say that Claude Frollo is probably one of the realest villains Disney has ever made. I think he's the, the easily the most evil. Oh, he is the most evil, 100%, yes. I think I agree with you. Hunchback in Notre Dame is probably the best film Disney's ever made. It's not my favorite, but it is like their masterpiece, I think. It's the it's the music, it's the like the choir, it's the gravitas oh. of the situation. Like Man. it's so powerful. I know everyone who talks about film score talks about um Hellfire, but how can you not Hellfire is probably my favorite Disney song ever. Yeah, I listen to it in the car, I, like like at, like like every day. <laughs> I fucking love. I can't believe that movie. That song made it into the movie. I mean, it's a song about like I'm going to rape this woman to death, and I'm going to enjoy it. That's what the song's about. Like, it's so fucking twisted. <laughs> I mean, now it's not like a psycho for listening to it, but. It's a beautiful song. It's a great song. But like in the moment, he's like, this is what I want and I'm going to take it. Yeah. Like, holy shit. And he, he knows that he's a bad person for doing it, too, which in su- he's such a complicated character. Yeah, it's I, I, I love Quasimodo as this just noble, good person. Mm-hmm. I love the whole the whole idea of the movie is who is the monster and who is the man. And I love that. Yeah, so much. It's also I think. Um, I'm, I'm sure an argument can be made, but it also doesn't have a happy ending. I don't care what anyone fucking says. It's not a happy ending. In what way? Well, okay. I'm not saying that like romance is like everything, but the fact that Quasimodo does end up with a girl is not only like, I don't want to sound like an asshole here, but not only is it realistic, but it's also awful. It's dark. Like with Disney, you're always, you know, conditioned well, to you know, hero gets the girl. True. But in this case, it was never about the girl. It was about self-acceptance above all else. And Quasimodo, through saving Paris and saving Esmeralda, finally learns that and accepts the fact that he is not a freak of nature. He's a human being who deserves love and respect like everybody else. And by finding that in himself, everyone else is able to find it too. Yeah, it's so cool. And that was different for Disney. It was. It was a nice. People say like, admittedly, when it's a hunchback and you know, captain of the guard. I'm sorry, but I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna place my bets there. Yeah, it's 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 realistic, and it's also like you said, it's a good message. Like, accept yourself. You know, (laughs) I yeah, that movie. I every time I watch it, I'm like astonished that it's not more well respected. Yeah. Well, actually, it's it's funny you say that. I'm glad you brought up the movie because Wish just came out. And people are saying that um, not only like people are looking at, you know, this new Disney movie, it's another Disney 
property. I don't know. Like Pixar isn't involved in this. And you look at the villain of Wish and you look at the villain of Hunchback of Notre Dame. You listen to the villain's song in Wish and Princess and the Frog. And then you listen to the villain song in Hunchback of Notre Dame. And like where Disney's losing its heart 100%. Like where did those villains in that music go? Yeah. You know what? You know who it is? It's Alan Menken. He was the yeah. guy responsible for most of the music of the 90s Disney run. Guy walked away with like eight Oscars out of the 90s. He did Aladdin. He did Hercules. He did Beauty and the Beast. He did like everything. So I don't know. Maybe, you know, hire songwriters who care. Hire screenwriters who care. Don't just run it's... it through the Disney conveyor belt. Actually make something that matters. Yeah. So I love, you know, I'm I'm a 24-year-old man that's about to say this but i love the frozen soundtrack i'm gonna be straight up and honest i love it i like the moana soundtrack but i feel like with the success of frozen and the like the lin-manuel miranda sound of moana because of how popular those movies and music were they're trying to make every fucking disney movie soundtrack sound like that and it's getting annoying the best one we've had it's i don't think it's coco but that's pixar that is pixar so i don't know it's just well, what Mencken did that I really respected was he didn't just make the same thing ever every time. All those film soundtrack, like all the, they all stand out as their own thing. Like he was adaptable, and that that's a that's the most powerful like aspect of production that you can have is adaptability. Yeah, and they also fit the story, time period, and location of the story that they're in. Hunchback in Notre Dame is very you know Notre Dame church bells choirs. Tarzan is very like jungle drums. Yeah. You know, Mulan is, is, you know, ancient China without being offensive, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And now, you know, you get Wish, which I don't really know. I haven't seen it, but, you know, I think it's like European and it's just pop. I don't know. The fact that I didn't really want to find out, I think, speaks volumes. Like, I couldn't yeah. tell anything from the trailer that, like, this it just seemed like more fluff. Yeah. Like, if you want to keep doing the animation the way that they're doing it now, that's fine. I get it. It's probably cheaper to do that now th- than it is to do 2D animation. But imagine Frozen, but the music had like a Nordic flair to it. That would, oh my God. Yeah. You know? Cool. Uh, oh, well. My third, my number one is to me, like just a movie that hits me in the heart within a second of it starting. And that is The Lion King. Oh, yeah. The second that sun rises and circle of life starts, I start crying like a baby every Mm. single time. The Lion King represents so much to me. And every time I watch it, I'm reminded that like, this is the movie (laughs) that defined Disney for me as a kid. Mm. It was the ultimate. It was my introduction to death. Like that's when I first like really started thinking about death was when I watched the Lion King, when Mufasa dies and Simba is trying to get him to wake up. That was me being like, what happened? That's crazy. Tarzan was my introduction to death. Wow. That's what that's wild, man. Disney, man. They used to yeah. have balls. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's insane. I love the concept of like, you know, accept your destiny when you are ready for it. Mm-hmm. Like I love that. Just, you know, no do what you must do, but find yourself first. That's yeah. those are great messages about life. Like the fact that the Lion King, most of the story is, um, oh my God, 
is oh what fuck simba it's simba literally on vacation <laughs> is great it's him taking a sabbatical him chilling out with a pig and a meerkat it's yeah so what well, is it's him just kind of you know ignoring his problems and not facing his past and eventually having to realize like i need to do this not just to save the the lions but also to make peace with what happened to my father like it's yep. it's a very personal journey of self discovery that is loaded with just incredible music an amazing elton john soundtrack and a beautiful yeah. animation that took them a while like they were the b team worked on the lion king like the the, the disney a team was focusing on pocahontas which they thought was going to be their real big hit so the lion king was like a secondary project that's crazy being like a way bigger success wasn't it something where i don't know if it was disney with dreamworks there was a movie that they were working on and if like you weren't doing your job you got sent to work on trek oh i remember i know that story i don't remember what the movies were and shrek was a bigger hit than the other movie i don't think it was shrek Shrek was started by an executive who got fired by Disney and made Shrek as a middle finger to Disney and the entire concept of fairy tales. That's funny. Which That's is great. Amazing. I mean, the, the, the villain who was designed to look like then Disney CEO, Michael Eisner is literally named Lord Fuckwad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even a secret. No, <laughs> but um, I do. I do know that story. I don't remember the movies, but I remember reading about that. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, it's cool that we're talking about Disney and, you know, we're kind of like talking about art and movies a lot recently. Um, the change of Disney is 100% the old Disney and during the Renaissance, it was an artist that cared. And now it's like a printing press. It's in, in relation to like Banksy, you know, the Renaissance was him doing his own work on the street and modern Disney is people finding that art, printing it and selling it. Pretty much. I mean, I, you know, I think really it's that Disney got too damn big. They used to be, you know, Walt Disney Studios, which was powerful, but mainly relied on, you know, creating movies that, you know, to entertain children that were mostly, you know, based on fairy tales or original ideas. But then they turned into a fucking conglomerate that absorbed Pixar and Marvel Mm -hmm. Studios and Lucasfilm and just turned into this money making monster that just, does not give a fuck about quality because they can write off billion dollar losses like it's nothing. Yeah, which is, it's it's upsetting because I don't like calling myself a Disney adult, but I love Disney. I, I will go to Disneyland and Disney World and have a blast. But it's unfortunate that like now to like Disney, you are basically praising a multi-million dollar company that does not give a shit about its customers or its employees. And that's really sad. And they're coming out with shit now that um, as much as I like Disney, it's really disappointing. And I know I shouldn't be disappointed in a fucking company that would be fine if it shut, if it closes doors tomorrow, its CEO would live happily for the rest of their life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough situation for the fans. Cause you know, I, I've never been to Disney World. I've never been to Disneyland. I, mm. And that's not like some form of protest. I just, as a kid, I wanted to go to Universal Studios. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and now I can't go as an adult. It's like a single adult because it's weird if I do that. <laughs> <laughs> I got to either get married or have a child in order to go to Disney World now. So we'll see what happens first. Mm. Um, but um, 
I like to just, I like to praise the work that matters to me. Yeah. Like we talked like Coco, for example, that's 2017. That's right around when, you know, that's right smack dab in the middle of Disney being who they are now. But there's something amazingly personal about that movie. Yeah. You had filmmakers behind it who were making something that mattered to them. And that's all it takes. You can get the money from a big ass conglomerate corporation to finance your project. But the person behind the camera, the person behind the pen of the script, if they care, you're going to get something that matters, that that really matters. 100%. Yes. Yeah. So that's why I, you know, you still get the occasional glimpse of humanity in these in these conveyor belt films because it's always you know eventually at the end of the day somebody wrote this because they cared about it yeah that's yeah here's a interesting question where do you think the decline started because i think it started as much as i like marvel i think it started when they bought marvel hmm. i don't know because their 2000s output was pretty shitty yeah but like becoming what they are today oh yeah that's true uh I guess, yeah, I think Marvel's probably around when it when it started happening. Because that, yeah. you know, those were just instant billion dollar checks for them. Yeah. And, They're definitely focusing on Marvel and Star Wars more than they are anything else now. Yeah. And again, like, if, the, you know, if Star Wars episode 10 or whatever the fuck comes out next fails, they don't ever suffer any consequences for that because they can afford to write it off yep they're worth so much money that they really can't they don't care about failure there's no incentive to make something good anymore Mm-mm. yeah it's a shame i wonder what walt would think yeah because like you know as controversial as he is you know i don't know every controversy about him but he still was a man with a vision you know and i really don't think he would like what it is today at all a man with a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan vision. Was he? Is that a rumor, or was he legitimately a, a neo-Nazi? I am or not, a Nazi. Yeah, there was nothing neo about it. Yeah, he, no, nothing neo about it. Yeah, he was associated with the original recipe. Um, yeah, he 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 took some meetings with some notable Nazis. Uh, oh shit! Really? A bit of a sympathizer, uh, kind of a notorious anti-Semite, allegedly. Disney lawyers, allegedly. But, you know, if I'm your first time hearing about that, go go do some research because it shouldn't be. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he had he was he was not the king of whimsy. He was a businessman who catered to places he thought were going to be you know, make him some money. So do you think he would approve of what's happening today? Very much. Yes. Really? One hundred percent. He would be. Yeah, he'd be just accepting it I, I don't think he'd be giving tours of disneyland anymore but <laughs> he'd definitely be i don't know, explaining star wars to walt disney would be interesting like i don't i don't know because he, he passed you know 10 years before star wars happened yeah i don't know it's interesting because yeah he was a businessman yeah he might have been a nazi but i do get the sense that he really did care about these films in his time he really did want to make something that mattered every single time yeah, he was very be... hands-on for a producer. He he did care. Yeah. You can be a shitty person and still have a vision and care about it. Yeah, people are flawed. You know? <laughs> like... I, don't like to, I don't like to say that about Nazis because I don't believe Nazis are flawed. But Walt Disney, <laughs> man, I don't want to hate him. He's Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
It's true. When he started out, he probably was a decent person who just wanted to make something good for his kids. But yeah, yeah. Well, all we all we know about today is the Walt that we were shown in Saving Mr. Banks, and that's the Walt we're going to talk about. The Walt and Travers mm-hmm. we're going to talk about are the ones that this movie showed us. Yeah, I do love. I, Disney made some of my favorite movies of all time, and I'm not going to just ignore that. Yeah, exactly. It's always complicated. Art is fucking complicated, man. When it, when you it find is. out the people behind your favorite stuff were dicks, it's really hard to come to terms with that sometimes. It is, yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of separating art from artist, I just found this out. You know, Charles Manson wrote music. Oh, yeah. And he, you know what? He wasn't bad. He wasn't bad. <laughs> you can listen to him on Spotify right now. If that Beach Boys guy had just taken a meeting with him, he might not have ever become a cult leader. <laughs> Yeah, that's fucking wild. You imagine like listening to some music and you're like, oh, that's pretty good. And you look at the like, oh, I wonder who made this. And it's fucking Charles Manson. I did the opposite way. I was like, I found out he wrote music. I was like, no way. And I looked him up on Spotify, started listening to it. And I was like, oh, fuck, it's good. <laughs> I was like, no. I would love, like, I don't know if he ever made any like albums, but I would love one of his albums on vinyl. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I mean, is that wrong? I mean, yeah, it's, you know. Speaking of, I wonder if you can like, you know. Let me just Google. It. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look up one of Hitler's paintings. Oh jeez! All right, now we're getting into some dicey territory. I wouldn't hang up a Hitler, but I would. De- I would listen to a Manson. <laughs> okay, they're not bad. Yeah, that's the fucking worst part of that. Is you know what? He was not. He was. He was pretty good. He's, he's better than I am. That's for damn sure. I couldn't paint that. <laughs> Ah, if only there were more people who thought that way, maybe he could have gotten into art school. <laughs> Jesus. It is weird when you find out monsters have like, you know, other sides to them to, to themselves. When monsters, you know, they're people too. They had desires and and hobbies and shit. Well, there's a, there's a theory. I don't remember where I heard it from, but like the reason artists can do what artists can do like create something from nothing is because they do have something wrong with them. So that is why most, you know, like psychopaths can produce art or are artistic in some aspect. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think my books are pretty good. So I wonder what the hell I'm going to (laughs) do. That would explain some of the thoughts I have from time to time. (laughs) I don't know about that. I think that, to do the shit that like Hitler and Manson were able to do requires access to a part of the mind that I think most of humanity does not have or will not tap into. Yeah, hopefully not. So I think doing that, you know, might like artistic Liberty might bleed into that somehow and work in tandem. But I don't think like, you know, that doesn't mean every artist is capable of the like the fucking Holocaust. No, no, not at all. But it also doesn't mean that every psycho is is able to paint, you know, something amazing or make yeah. a, make an album or write a book. Yeah, it's we're all different. We are all all of us snowflakes. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, like art also comes from places of emotion. Yeah, I'm sure. So, you know, I can I can see the connection. I don't necessarily believe it, but I can see the connection. I think it's mostly just people trying to explain, like, why can't I do that? I think a lot of art is that is people who can't do it being like, well, this is why, because I can't murder somebody, which means I can't paint. 
I, I think there's some of that. Hmm. <laughs> uh, okay. That was fun. It was a good discussion. So let's talk a bit about Mary Poppins before we get into saving Mr. Banks. Hmm. Mary Poppins, 1964, was based on the series of children's books by Pamela Lyndon Travers, who wrote eight Poppins novels between 1934 and 1988. The film is based on the first book, whose film rights were sold to Walt Disney after 20 years of prodding and negotiation. 20 years, because his kids said, I like Mary Poppins, and Walt's like, well, I'll make a movie for you. And then he got somebody told him no, and he couldn't take that. So 20 years he just spent trying to convince her to sell mm-hmm. him her, her book. I love how the movie paints that as like a noble thing. That's harassment, straight up. That's yeah. 20 years of harassment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I made I made a promise to my kids 20 years ago. No, well, you are harassing me. I said no, leave me alone. The music playing in that scene where he's like, I've never broken a promise to my kids. I'm thinking like there should be some like eerie horror score right there. Cause that's some scary shit to say to somebody you've been prodding at for 20 years. Like I will <laughs> not break my kid's hearts. Miss Travers. <laughs> like it's almost like he's going to kill her. Thank God. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Disney's daughters love the books. Walt promised he turned them into a movie and he held onto that for two decades. At, I'm at some point. I mean, two decades, his kids were like in college now. I'm sure they yeah, didn't give a shit anymore. Dad, I don't care. Fucking leave me alone. What's Mary Poppins? That kid, that book you read to me once when I was like five? Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know. All um, right, whatever you want, Dad. <laughs> that was way more about Walt than it was about his kids, let's be honest here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Travers came on board as a consultant. In truth, she had approval over almost everything. She was very uh, persnickety. Yeah, apparently the the one thing that the movie got right was her. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to get into why they were able to do exactly that uh, when we get into Saving Mr. Banks. So just some stuff she didn't like. She disapproved of the dilution of the harsher aspects of Mary Poppins' character. She wrote, apparently, quite the uh, holier-than-thou governess. And mm. she's not really a whimsical, you know, magic witch. She's more of a hard-ass who uses magic to get her point across. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, She felt ambivalent about the music. She thought it was too whimsical. She did not care for whimsy. She was not, she did not suffer fools, which is so weird. Oh shit. Did she not like the movie? No, she hated the movie. Whoa. And the movie said, Mr. Banks just glossed right over that. They made her <laughs> love the movie at the end of it. She was like, what have you done to my poppins? And, uh, yeah, we're going to get to that in a second here. <laughs> she Holy shit. Did not know. Uh-uh, she didn't like this. In fact, she hated it so much, particularly the use of animation. The fucking penguins, that that was real. She hated the penguins so much. Oh, yeah. She hated cartoons with a passion. She ruled out any further adaptations of the other novels. Like, they wanted to make more, and she was like, it'll be a cold day in hell before you adapt another one of my books. Wow, she really didn't like this at all. No, she did not. Mary Poppins Returns is an entirely original idea based on the character of Mary Poppins whose film rights still belong to Disney. Holy shit. Yeah. None of the other Poppins books are they're they're all they all are all still owned by the Travers. I didn't know. I thought they like won her over like the film. Don't believe everything you see on TV, kids. Please. She was God. broke straight up. She needed the money. That's the entire reason she did decided to do this because she had no other option. Wow, I did not know that. I fell for I fell for Disney. 
I fell for the lie. She uh, So, yeah, pretty much. Rather than original songs, she wanted the soundtrack to feature known standards of the Edwardian period in which the story is set. She wanted, like, classical music standards as the score instead of the whimsical Sherman soundtrack we got. So what did she want? She wanted a fucking drama? Yeah, she wanted Downton Abbey, essentially. <laughs> Even though she's the one who wrote the damn thing. So I, This lady. Uh, thankfully, the contract stipulation cited that Final cut privilege on the finished print belonged to one man, and that was Walt Disney. Mm -hmm. So he overruled her eventually. He was like, Pamela, I love you, and I want to do this, right? But shut the fuck up. In much kinder terms, but that's basically what he said. That's asking. insane. Because in the movie, when the movie was over, I was like, oh, they have a, they had a cute relationship. I was like, I like how she's like, I don't like this. And they're like, oh, you foe. Nope. Yeah, how that really happened. The movie makes it seem like they became lifelong friends and a working relationship was made. But no, they, she was very much like, why did you do what did you do to my baby? And fled back to England. And that was it. <laughs> my God. The movie, on the other hand, ended up being an enormous success, grossed one hundred and three million on a budget of only six million. And this was in 1964. So that was huge. Mm. It was nominated for 13 Oscars. Holy shit. Four of which it won, including Best Actress for Julie Andrews' portrayal of Mary Poppins. Nice. Yeah. The funny thing is, cool story about this. So Mary Poppins was up against My Fair Lady that year at the Oscars. My Fair Lady ended up winning Best Picture. But Julie Andrews was in the Broadway production of My Fair Lady, and they kicked her to the curb to cast Audrey Hepburn in the movie. Oh. And then Julie Andrews won the Oscar for another movie that she did instead of My Fair Lady. That's funny. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it spawned a very belated sequel in 2018 called Mary Poppins Returns, which was a decent success in its own right. Good that's movie. Big, hmm? Good movie. Yeah, good movie. Good movie. Uh, that's So that's all I got about Mary Poppins. Like To go further in, we'd have to do a full episode on Mary Poppins, which was yeah. really fun, and we never actually have done that. <laughs> uh, so, Mr. Banks, this movie's production... As interesting, I think. So Saving Mr. Banks was initially developed by BBC Films and Essential Media Entertainment as an independent production with no involvement from Disney. But they realized, we can't really make this if we don't get approval from Disney. <laughs> yeah. So they approached Walt Disney Studios for permission to use copyrighted material in the film, and eventually Disney was like, okay. <laughs> So, sure. But, oh, so is, is, is it a Disney property? It is. I'm going to tell the story of how that happened. It's kind of interesting. Because this almost just was completely dissolved. Hmm. Uh, the idea for Saving Mr. Banks first emerged in 2002 when producer Ian Colley produced a documentary about P.L. Travers called The Shadow of Mary Poppins. And he felt the story was interesting enough to warrant a biopic. So he hired Sue Smith to pen a screenplay about Travers' relationship with Walt Disney and Kelly Marcel was later hired to assist in screenwriting. And they quickly realized there was no way to do this film the way they wanted to without getting permission from Disney to use the iconography from Mary Poppins. When the Disney executives, namely CEO Bob Iger and Chairman Alan Horn, received the script and Collie's request, they had a decision to make. There were three options here. Number one, buy the script and shut down the project. Just end it. Which <laughs> Disney has done a lot. Uh, they also put it in turnaround, which basically means it goes to development hell where it stews for decades until somebody picks it up and decides, oh, I've 
This sounds intriguing. I'll take my, I'll take a shot at this. That happens mm-hmm. a lot as well. Or they could co-produce themselves the film themselves and move forward. And yeah. then they decided to get involved, came on board in February 2012. This became an official Walt Disney production. Okay. They chose John Lee Hancock to direct. He had just done the blind side. So he's the guy. That's a weird choice. Well, he became he he's good at soft biopics. When you take a controversial story, you ignore all the controversy and you make something that's good for families and has no edge to it. You you, you call John Lee Hancock. They were like, <laughs> he'll make us look good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, have you heard about like the blind side controversy happening recently? No. <laughs> so Michael Ower, I believe is the football player's name. He recently came out and like said that like the family who raised him, so to speak, like stole a bunch of money from him and like made him look like their relationship was nowhere near the way it was portrayed on screen. And now like there's lawsuits and shit like it's it all erased that movie for the most part. Holy shit. Mm hmm. Again, I was lied by Disney. No, <laughs> that wasn't Disney. That was John Lee Hancock. I know. I know. <laughs> but still, <laughs> I need to stop believing the things that I see on TV. Always rec- when you watch a biopic, like enjoy it as a movie, but then look up the true story and learn some facts about what really happened. Because nine times out of ten, bullshit. Mm, I have a feeling I'm going to be doing that a lot uh, in uh, in the upcoming months. Probably, probably, yeah. <laughs> so. Now that Disney was like, this is our movie, uh, they got really involved. Bob Iger himself contacted Tom Hanks to play Walt Disney. Oh, nice. He was the first choice. And this was the first time ever that Walt Disney had been portrayed in an official biopic. Really? Yeah. So they wanted it done right. That's that's interesting. Why hasn't there, you know, there's like, you know, movies about like Steve Jobs and other people. I don't know why Steve Jobs is the first one that came to mind. But why hasn't there been Disney? Well, Steve Jobs, uh, that movie paints him as a bit of a fuck. Mm -hmm. And I guess if you want to tell Walt Disney's story correctly, you know, he wasn't a saint. Yeah, he'll have to be a Nazi. And Disney's not going to let the creator of the House of Mouse be looked at as anything less than God's gift to cinema. Yeah, it's interesting because people say that like Mickey Mouse is the face of Disney, but Walt Disney himself was so good at appearances that he is the face of Disney, you know? Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Uh, April 2012, Emma Thompson accepted the role of P.L. Travers. She described Travers as, quote, a woman of quite eye-watering complexity and contradiction. She wrote a very good essay on sadness because she was, in fact, a very sad woman. She had a very rough childhood, the alcohol, the alcoholism of her father being part of it and the attempted suicide of her mother being another part of it. I think she spent her whole life in a state of fundamental inconsolability and hence got a lot done. Mm. Yeah, and I think just constant sadness in her life turned her into a bit of a bitter old crone and she reflected that pain onto everybody she encountered. Yeah. I wonder if her if like her father was a good person like he was in Saving Mr. Banks. I doubt it. Depression era of like the entire world, there really weren't a lot of good parents. It was, you know, you had kids because it was expected of you. Kids were better seen, not heard. If they talked back, you smacked them. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, it was was rough. (laughs) If Mr. Banks is actually supposed to be her father, then maybe he was a good person. 
Maybe. Maybe. But then again, you know, the movie is called Saving Mr. Banks. So is the book, is George Banks more the father she wished that she'd had? Like, is he more mm -hmm. of a father figure who, like, maybe in the end, her relationship with her father soured because of his death and because of maybe, you know, his drunken antics. And she wrote George Banks as a way to project her father, like her, you know, dream father. Yeah. I mean, I've done that. I've written characters who are, you know, kind of elevated versions of people I know, people, you know, with traits I wish they'd had. I've done that. It's not, you know, it's tough. You feel bad for her father? For her father, I do. I, you know, but he, he made the, the most of, in, in the movie, the version we saw. Yes, yeah, yeah. As, as the character, do you feel bad? He made him? the most of what he, of what he had. He seemed to, he cared about his kids. He wanted, the, he wanted, he didn't want them to grow up too fast. And he knew that so, the situation they had, that was going to happen. So, um, for reasons I'm not going to get into right now, I am trying to not teach my wife, but I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to teach Caitlin how to analyze movies a little bit more. And she's very like, you know, a, a, you know, I, I mean, anyone yelling at their spouses is, you know, not good. You shouldn't. But in, but in that scene, when she's telling her daughter to set the table and he's like, not now. She thought that was disgusting of him because like, what do you mean? She's like, your wife is telling your daughter to go set the table and you're going to yell at her because she's, you know, laying an egg. playing pretend. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is a good moment. Analyze that scene. It is awful. He should not have yelled at her, but think about what he's feeling right now. It's because he doesn't want his daughter to grow up too fast. And in the moment, he's enjoying her playing pretend, laying an egg. And then she says, I want to grow up to be like you. And he knows that he's an alcoholic and he doesn't think he's a good father. And she's like, oh, okay. But still, you shouldn't yell at your wife. And you shouldn't. 100% you shouldn't. But it was just interesting to, to see that. I, okay. I don't think, I don't believe in generalities. And I do think that sometimes people need to wake up call. But oh, yeah. I don't. That's not for today. That's <laughs> a whole other <laughs> situation. But sometimes, you know, relationships are not always fucking Cinderella and Prince Charming. No, not 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 at all. Not not even a little bit. And in that moment, it's it's complex because yeah, it yeah. really is. Yeah, yeah. Ah, tough stuff. Colin Farrell, great job by the way. Oh man, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Walt Disney was fully behind the production and the team was given to access or they were given access to 36 hours worth of recordings of Travers co-writer Don DeGrotti and the Sherman brothers discussing the early days of production. And those scenes are adapted into the film. So they were able to use the actual recordings that Travers insisted on making to adapt into the film. That's why those that's why that's done so well. They even put one at the end. But now knowing that she hated Mary Poppins. The question that you asked me during Shadow of the Vampire, how do I feel about people being portrayed differently and during a biopic? Hey, Connor, how do you feel about someone being portrayed this way in a biopic when they are actually using the real voice of the lady in a movie that she hated, in a movie about the movie she hated, using real audio recordings of her voice? <laughs> and then 
framing it as, oh, look at her. She's so sassy. I think that Disney made the ultimate gaslighting picture. <laughs> and she's dead, so what's she going to do about it? Yep. But also, Walt's dead, so what's he going to do about it? Mm. It's, yeah, you know, I, I want honesty in my biopics, but if we do that, every story is going to be depressing, angry, or weird. So I think you got to take at some point a little artistic liberty just to keep things interesting and somewhat even keeled. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I get to do things like this where I can bitch about the inaccuracies because I enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> um. So John Lee Hancock was a little worried that Disney would constantly interfere in production, especially with the film's portrayal of Walt. He thought they'd want him sanitized or put on a pedestal. And he was actually surprised at how not involved they ended up being. The only thing they insisted on was that there be no cigarettes in the movie at all. So that is so crazy that that is still being pushed today with a hole in pictures. He's pointing with two fingers because he fucking smoked a lot. Everybody knows that even Disney knows that. And they're still like, yeah, but still let's not. Well, Walt smoked like a chimney. In fact, two years after Mary Poppins, he was dead from lung yeah. cancer. Yeah, lung cancer, yep. He's coughing in the movie constantly. He's coughing in the movie, and he even says, like, everyone is keeping her out of his office because he's smoking. Just show this. Apparently, I, I didn't know this, but smoking can now get a film an automatic R rating in some cases. Mm, how do you feel about that? I think that's fucked up. Smoking, that's pretty we've fucked all up. seen it. We all know what it looks like. No, no yep. kid's going to be like, oh, my God, Walt Disney was smoking, so I'm going to steal cigarettes from my mom. Like, no, no. People don't do that anymore. Kids steal vapes now. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's time we, we got to get over some shit in this country. We're still so fucking puritanical that it just bothers me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Disney argued studio. Uh, the studio argued cigarettes don't belong in a kid's movie. And Tom Hanks really wanted the cigarettes. He was like, I want to play an authentic Walt Disney. And the man smoked. And studio was like, I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing, Tom. Sit down. <laughs> that's interesting. Because, I mean, we just talked about Pinocchio. And that's like a huge... That That's like a point of the movie. Yeah. So How do you do Pinocchio us? without fucking Pleasure Island? Yeah. Speaking of which, how fucking sick and twisted is that? <laughs> yeah, I know. The kids oh, scream God. turning into a donkey yeehaw. Will Horrifying. On me. Absolutely Horrifying. Worst part, Pinocchio does not go back for those kids. No, he doesn't. He never tells Geppetto, like, I love being a real boy, and also, there's some crazy dude kidnapping children and turning them into donkeys, we should probably do something about that. Um, this is kind of off-topic, but I just recently got into Souls games, like Dark Souls and shit, and there is a new game that just came out called Lies of P, which is a Souls game, but it is literally the story of Pinocchio, and I want to play it so bad. <laughs> That's you play cool. out Pinocchio, and instead of a puppet, you're a robot. But they call robots puppets. Well, that's that's the, that's the movie AI artificial intelligence. But okay, that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's cool because like you're trying to find Geppetto. That's like the goal of the game is to get back to your father. That's it's so cool. Did you watch the apparently super shitty uh, Robert Zemeckis remake of Pinocchio that came out last year? 
So I didn't. And I know I've said it on the podcast so many times is I am a very firm believer in even if it's a remake, treat it as its own piece of art and film. But I don't want to watch it because I'm I'm scared. I'm going to watch it eventually. But I will say I did watch the Guillermo del Toro one. Mm-hmm. That was so good. Okay. I got to give it another chance. You didn't like it? I, I liked parts of it. I, I found Pinocchio insufferable, and I thought it so, was too long. So something I realized watching that movie is it's not a retelling or a remake of Disney's Pinocchio. It is a retelling of Pinocchio. And that in that, mean, I thought I thought the kid was insufferable in the Disney movie too. <laughs> that's fair. He is insufferable, but he's insufferable in the in the source material. He kills Geppetto. Oh shit! Yeah, he's an asshole. He's not like a bad kid. He is an asshole. Damn. Yeah. Did you ever watch the series Once Upon a Time? Yes. I was blown away when that one guy was revealed to be Pinocchio. Yeah, crazy. I miss those early seasons when it you know, things mattered. The first three I, seasons of that show were so good. <laughs> but even like the later seasons they're like stupid fun to watch i mean i did watch it i didn't stop <laughs> fucking chernabog showing up like merlin king arthur the whole Hades mm. thing like jesus christ i have a soft spot for i would 100 i know if if anyone listening is a fan of soaps you're gonna hate me for saying this but once upon a time is a soap opera yes 100 i have a soft spot for Soap operas like that, that are really cheesy and overdone. I hate, one thing I hate in TV is when a character betrays another character. And then like two seasons later, they do it again. And they're the other, and the first, like they're, they're surprised that this character would betray them again. And then they do it every again. They, single time. Rumpelstiltskin to betray someone. And they're like, what? I thought you changed. I was like, he is literally Rumpelstiltskin. Particularly Belle, like every time like she would be like, I thought you changed. And he was, he'd be like, I'm sorry, Belle. I'll never do it again. And she would buy it every single time. Yes. Like, come like, on. What, like the, when, when like he finds her or whatever, and like, you know, they're in love again. And you're like, oh no, he's, he's a good person now. No, he's not. He is I, the I, only person that knows he knew of the curse the entire time. He is not a good person. I really liked how they did Beauty and the Beast with with them, though. I thought that was a really creative. Yeah, that was the, cool. The whole Peter Pan thing that was fucking brilliant. Like I, yeah. those first three seasons, but the second Elsa showed up, it all went downhill. Yep. Ah. Because why? Why do that? Because Frozen had just come out and people liked. Frozen. Yeah, but but it's like classics. War. Uh, never mind. I I thought they butchered King Arthur. I was really looking forward to the whole Merlin thing. And he was such mm-hmm. a sauce piece of shit. Yeah. And I was, when Mr. Hyde showed up, I thought he, I thought it was going to be Dracula. But that would have been cool. Yeah. Yeah. Nah. I like a uh, hot take for people who like once upon a time. I like Regina. I know she's an awful person. Slay queen. I can't believe I just said that out loud. Slay, get your bag. All right. I liked Regina eventually. That first season, though, she's a grade A first class cunt. Yes, and I will not. I will not yeah. back down from that. Yes, she's. But I, I do just... love a bad guy's redemption story, and she certainly yeah. had a great one. So you know, there you go. Yeah, she's great. Um, I hate the main character so much. I hate her. 
I don't think Regina should have ended up as the good queen. I think she still had a lot of shit to answer for, and they forgave awfully quickly. They did. <laughs> they did. Oh, well. Okay. Anyway, back to... <laughs> that was a fun <laughs> sidetrack. Uh, saving Mr. Banks. I don't, I, I keep wanting... I, I've almost accidentally said Saving Private Ryan like three times. I've never seen Saving Private Ryan. I didn't know that it was a uh, Spielberg movie. It's like the Spielberg movie. It's one I of didn't the know that. greatest... That That's an amazing movie. I didn't know. I started watching it the other day and I was like, I don't want to be depressed. <laughs> Stop watching it. Okay. Is it a depressing movie? It depends on how you look at it because it, it's ultimately about choice, sacrifice, and bravery. And you can look at it as a depressing movie or you can look at it as an uplifting champ, like champion of a movie. Mm. Really depending I did, on... I did just get back from a really bad day at work hating my job. So that has something to do with it. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe watch it on like a sunny day when you don't have work. <laughs> uh, so saving Mr. Banks was a big hit, grossing 117 million on a budget of 35 million, which is pretty good for a biopic about Mary Poppins. Mm. Uh, it was nominated for one Oscar at the 86th Academy Awards, best original score for composer Thomas Newman, who lost it to Gravity. I think Stephen Price was the yeah. uh, composer for that. Let me confirm that. But yeah, Gravity won that Oscar for score. Every time I watch Gravity, I like it more and more. I've only seen it the one time in IMAX at the movies. And Stephen Price, that's correct. But yeah, it was an amazing movie. A really intense thriller of a film, but also, for me, kind of a one and done. Like, once you know how it yeah. goes, it's kind of like, well, now all the tension's gone. The only time I, I rewatch it is showing other people who haven't seen it. I'm like, oh, shit, you haven't seen it? That's a good idea. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, show. I mean, I, I do own it. Uh, I was going to say name another space survival movie, but there is a few. <laughs> in fact, the best one ever made, in my opinion, The Martian. Oh, my God. You know, I like Interstellar just a little bit more. That's not a space survival movie. He falls into a fucking black hole alone. Okay, when I say space survival movie, I mean it's like, okay, imagine Castaway, but in space. All right, Interstellar has a bit of that. It, it give does. Me, give me that. Okay, it does. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah, I did like The Martian a lot. Uh, space scares the shit out of me, so I I'm I don't ever want to go there. I don't understand people. Yeah, do. space is scary. Yeah. Um, Saving Mr. Banks has an IMDb score of 7.5, Rotten Tomatoes score of 79%, audience score of 84%. Hmm. Audiences liked it a little bit more than the critics. Uh, consensus reads aggressively likable and sentimental to a fault. Saving Mr. Banks pays tribute to the Disney legacy with excellent performances and sweet, high spirited charm. And I love the term aggressively likable. Yeah, that's that's a weird choice of words. I don't think this two those two words are not synonymous. They don't go together. <laughs> I I get it. I, Actually, yeah. The only other time I would use aggressively likable is Ted Lasso. <laughs> yes 100 that's that's fantastic yeah <laughs> believe uh that's awesome <laughs> aggressively likable that's great um okay well with that let's talk about the film itself with some categories here uh scene performance music and dialogue where would you like to start um let's uh start with dialogue okay like we always do. <laughs> um, or actually, let, let, let's do music first. 
music is a big is a big part of this movie. Let I want I want to do music. Okay. Um, this score is by Thomas Newman, and a lot of the music is the early uh, development of the songs from Mary Poppins. Yeah, which is is just fantastic. I love the soundtrack to Mary Poppins. Way to go, Sherman Brothers. Um, I didn't know one of them helped with the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I'm gonna be honest. I thought they were both dead. I, yeah. No, there's there's a couple people from Mary Poppins still with us. Yeah. Thanks. Um. Sorry, that's my. So, I've back in the '60s. Uh, "Chim Chim Cheri" is the song that won Best Song at the Oscars that year. Mm. Because it's just such a delightful little tune. And it's kind of the backbone of this movie's score, which I really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, so right off the bat, the opening titles, the piano rendition of Chim 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 yes. sets the tone really, really well. And you've got Colin Farrell doing a spoken word version of the beginning of Chim Chim Chiri in Mary Poppins to like set the stage for the movie. Yeah. I love, I love that. It's so good. Is it just me or just... Jim Chimari have kind of a creepy undertone. I don't know why. Yeah, the whole he does the whole thing. I mean, it's never really made clear what Bert is, like why he has these magical powers, or like what his whole deal is in Mary Poppins and this whole street sweep, like you know chimney sweep network and all that. There, there's a lot of creepy elements in Mary Poppins. There is. Um, I always viewed Bert as like Mary Poppins because they know each other. Mm-hmm. I like she is like his helper. She spots out people who need help. And I mean, truly, he probably saw Mr. Banks walking to work one day and realized how depressed he was. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, um, yeah, so that's what so I, yeah. I put the scene. Uh, Let's fly a kite when she's dancing. That's such a cute like when you see her foot tapping. I know it's not like a, a, like a score moment but it's just a cute music moment scene that i really enjoy watching every time i liked that there's no way in shit it ever actually happened but it was a nice little finally like she was on board moment <laughs> yeah no <laughs> i don't know um i have uh when they were trying out the bank song you know fidelity fiduciary bank and all that when she's listening to that and she's also remembering her father's drunken speech at the fair uh, yeah. about the bank. And those two moments juxtapos- juxtaposed together and kind of warring at e- warring each other in her brain. I thought that was done really well. It was, yeah. I like how he start, starts singing. <laughs> like Colin Farrell. Yeah, singing. Falls off the fucking stage and breaks his shit. Drunk. Yeah. It's really upsetting. Um... There's uh, the music that plays when her father and um, Pamela are eating ice cream. It's like subtle piano. It's just really cute and loving. Really good. Yeah, I, I I liked their relationship. And I, you know, I admire good fathers. You know, being a I dad, think- you just got to be there. And you're, you know, you're the best. So the first time watching it, uh, again, I, me and I, I think Caitlin sees it the way I do now. But you know, she she viewed him as like maybe not a good father or husband, but he really it was. He was a really good father and a pretty good hu- husband, from what it seems like. But he just 
when you get incredibly depressed, you know, um, there's even a line I'm not going to say um, about a cage that comes out uh, later. Um, and his cage was alcohol. And um, I'm I'm on the side of the argument of alcoholism that it's not the person's fault. I know that's probably a very big hot take, but it's not their fault. Alcoholism is a really devastating mental illness um, that's hard to get out of. And I know that the father hated himself for that, but he every sober moment he had, he tried to spend with his kids. True. I, I have mixed feelings about addiction. Yeah. Uh, but I will save that for... I don't know. Maybe we'll do Requiem for a Dream or some shit. Down <laughs> oh, dude, that that movie. Um, we. Oh man, we were talking about movies that made you cry. Every time I watch that movie, I cry. That movie scared the fuck out of me, and I like. It, I think they should show that movie to kids who like get caught with weed and shit. Like they want to scare them straight. Show them Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, instead of doing fucking Dare. Yeah, dr- <laughs> fucking you know, take a pencil and a T-shirt and hey, drugs are bad, huh? Fist bump. No, show them what happens. To Jennifer Connelly, and she won't stop doing dope, and she gets a train run on her by her pimp and all of his friends. Isn't that movie? I don't remember. There's a scene in that movie when someone is on the other side of a door, like they're locked in the bathroom or something, and he or like he's not letting him. Someone's mom isn't letting them come home, and he's like, "Mom, please just open the door." And he starts like screaming at her. Is that Wrecking for a Dream? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Jared Leto sells his mom's TV for. That's right. Yep. Then mom gets addicted to diet pills and like oh, Jesus that movie man yeah Ugh. um I found that 4K Ultra HD sealed at half price books for like five bucks whoa are you yeah. serious so I own I don't know if I'll ever just put it on for kicks but I own Requiem for a Dream that is not a movie you put on for kicks no. that's a movie but I want to watch show. like one day I'll I'll need it oh yeah <laughs> for sure Ugh. <laughs> uh. One last music moment I want to spotlight because uh, it just it got me in the heart. It was the premiere of Mary Poppins. And Pamela is walking down, you know, into the theater and she turns and sees a poster with George Banks on it. And you just get a little bit of the opening music from Tuppence. Yep. And it was so fucking touching. It's like, oh, they saved yep. George Banks. I have another moment. Um, it's it's real quick. It's real subtle. It's when uh, Walt Disney is sitting on the bench outside of the studio. And he hears, I think it's Robert playing the piano upstairs. And he goes in, in upstairs and they sing the song basically about Pamela. That was, it's a, it's a huge moment. I like. Then he go like, that could work. Yep. <laughs> uh, work like presenting to Walt Disney must have been something else. Like somebody had to play like, hey, you know, this is called When You Wish Upon a Star. What do you think, Walt? Hey, this is the bare necessities. What do you think, Walt? Like I know, bibbity bobbity boo. Huh? What do you think, Walt? Like that uh, happened. So, as much of a businessman as he was, though, I wonder if he was a good boss. I think he was. I mean, he, you know, he he acted like Disney. You know, Walt Disney Pictures was basically a kingdom. Like he, you know, he he did have treats on hand and knew everyone by their first name. Like he really did want to make something magical that had never been done before in Hollywood, and he did. He wanted to make a community, not a company. Yeah, at first, yeah. As culty as it seems, yeah. Yeah, that's hmm. interesting. Oh, all right. Let's let's go to uh, dialogue next. Um, I only have three written down here. Uh, 
my first one, I when Pamela first arrives in LA and she describes it as it smells like chlorine and sweat. <laughs> have you ever been to Los Angeles? I have. It was a great I I had a great time. It smells like chlorine and sweat. It's it smells odd. I'll give him that. She was like, she was like, it smells like, and he's like, Jasmine? She's like, no, chlorine and sweat. To me, it smelled like Botox and broken dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like uh, the opening line to the movie and the last line. It's the opening. It's it's the lines of uh, uh, Chim Chimery. Uh, winds in the east, mist coming in, like something is brewing about to begin. Can't put my finger on what lies in store, but I feel what's to happen all happened before. Especially in this movie, the context of that like line means a lot because Mary Poppins, the movie, is a reflection of her life. So like it has happened before, which, yeah, good. That is good. good. I like that. Um. I have a quick one real like here. It's um when when they first when Pamela and Walt first meet and Pamela starts making demands and you see a little flash of anger in Walt's eyes and Pamela goes, Ah, there you are. I was like, Oh, she's she's pushing buttons on purpose here. She's trying to see how far she can go before he punches her in the face. Yeah. It turns <laughs> out quite far. He was a very patient man. <laughs> Um, I like when they're trying to find the name for Miss Banks. <laughs> she says, "She says it should be something warm, a bit sexy. How about Mavis?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. I love when they're arguing about like they want her to be a suffragette because otherwise, if she doesn't have a job, why does she need a nanny? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh yeah, what is it? She, uh, the, she's like, are you saying she's a bad mother? And they all say no, except Robert, who says yes. <laughs> I love that he kept, you know, poking back because he was, yeah. you know, he wasn't, he didn't, he didn't, he he, got, he understood. I I liked him. I liked that yeah. he just, you know, if if I'm gonna if if I'm in a meeting like that and somebody's constantly throwing out unreasonable shit, I don't kiss ass. So I would mm. I would do the same thing. Yeah. 100%. Um uh, one line that I loved was uh Walt Disney. There's no greater joy than that seen through the eyes of a child and there's a little bit of a child in all of us. Mm-hmm. That kind of describes his whole philosophy on life. Like he wanted people to feel special, he wanted people to be happy, especially white people. And uh especially white people with <laughs> blue eyes and black hair. <laughs> Yeah, I just I I like that approach to life, you know, never lose your spark, never lose your innocence, you know, enjoy ice cream, you know, play hopscotch, like just, you know, occasionally nurture the inner child and make sure you never lose them. That's really cute. Um, I like this line because it's kind of a a parallel. Um, She gets off the airport. She gets off the airport. What the fuck? She leaves the airport and the car is there waiting for her. And um, no, this is when she's in. She like someone offers her to be carted to his to his office. And she says, I'm perfectly capable of walking. 
But it, it, I thought it was a cute parallel to the scene when her family was leaving their home in Australia. And the wife is like, where's our carriage? And he's like, we're perfectly capable of walking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cute. that was her still holding on to to that. Um, there's a bit of dialogue I wanted to shout between. Uh, yeah, here we go. So P.L. Travers gets, I won't say close, but friendly-ish with Ralph, the limo driver. Yeah. And he has a handicapped daughter. And when he when she's going back to London, uh, she tells him like, hey, you know, she gives him a list and Ralph's reading the list. It says Albert Einstein, Van Gogh, Roosevelt, Frida Kahlo. What is this? And she goes, they all had difficulties. Jane can do anything that anyone else can do. Do you understand? Look on the back. And it says Walt Disney. She says deficiencies in concentration and hyperactive behavior explains everything. But I love that, you know, she gave him what he needed like he needed to know that she she can have dreams too mm-hmm. and that that was so the look on his face dude paul giamatti does not get enough credit for his role in this he was so good just he so really was. in that moment just like he you know he, he's about to fall apart and i wonder if ralph is a real person probably not <laughs> i don't know a limo driver in 1961 for Dis- for disney i doubt it i bet he was paid in cash <laughs> uh but yeah, I just I, I thought that was a great gesture to kind of humanize Travers a bit and show that she does care uh largely about children. I mean, otherwise, yeah. why would she write why why else would she write Mary Poppins? Mm-hmm. Um yeah. It's um I like basically Walt Disney's whole like monologue he has while talking to Pamela, when he goes to her house about his early life, I'm not going to get into it, but basically he tells a story of how his father was not the greatest man, how he kind of had him and his brother um, deliver newspapers. And it was just an interesting moment seeing like, hey, I I haven't just asked for everything in my life. I worked for it too. I had a tough life like you did. I have my own Mr. Banks. We all have our Mr. Banks in our lives, which that's really what Mary Poppins is about, you know? Yeah, you know, we no very few people have a perfect relationship with their parents. Yeah. We've all got issues, we've all got demons, we've all got resents resentments. Like the trick is to to figure out how to not let that stuff define who you are mm-hmm. and to use it into something productive, whether that be forgiveness or a book. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I got my own issues with my parents. You know, it's I've been vocal about that on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've it's been uh, it's been tough to kind of move past some of that stuff. But I I've done the best I can. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Touching stuff. Uh, performance. So this is pretty much a, a battle between Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson. Uh, who who got it for you, man? Just. I have to say Tom Hanks just because if you've watched like any videos of Walt Disney, um, Tom Hanks is so good at playing him. It's really scary how close he gets to like his mannerisms, his facial expressions. He even the fact that he I know obviously it's going to be in a Disney movie, but the fact that he points with the two fingers, that's such a cool detail. (laughs) It was so cool. 
Um, he's just such a good character. I, you know, he kind of like bl- blended into the role of Walt Disney in this movie. I agree. I went Hanks as well. Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, I he's our, he he's kind of our, we're on his side pretty much the whole movie. And even though he's kind of the ag- aggressor here. But, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, I like the way he's portrayed. I like, you know, Hanks is the go-to guy for just, you know, a kind historical figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I, I thought Emma Thompson was great, but the character is just so goddamn insufferable. Just so unnecessarily mean. Yeah, she is. But she had like the moments when she does like break and like smile. Yeah. Those seem really genuine and they they made me smile. Every time she smiled, I smiled. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh yeah. All right. Well, she she was great, but just you know, it's it's Tom Hanks. It's a little yeah. he's always gonna win me over pretty much every time. Mm-hmm. Love the guy. Uh but like Colin Farrell was great, Paul Giamatti was great, uh BJ Novak, Jason Schwartz was great, yeah. Uh what's his name? Bradley Whit- Whitford. They were all great too. Mm-hmm. That's a good cast. I'm realizing now how small of a cast this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, they hadn't actually started filming Mary Poppins. This was just trying to get her on board. Oh, yeah, true. Um, best scene. I actually only have one thing written down here. Are you serious? Yeah, just one. I mean, we could talk about a few, but I have one that I just I really liked. And oh. that was the first time we meet Walt Disney. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's built up so well. You know, you, Travers goes to L.A. She's picked up by this guy. She gets to the hotel. It's loaded with Disney shit, just like stuffed, you know, animals and fruit and candies and whatnot. <laughs> uh, she does not handle that well. No. Uh, she gets to the studio. They're driving her in. She want they want to give her a tour. She doesn't care. And then you know we go to to the room where Walt's got his wall of Oscars, and he's just like you know. P.L. Travers, well, what a treat it is to for you to be here to see my studio. And he's just such a warm, welcoming, like force of nature almost. You know, Walt Disney is almost not a human being. He's like the def- he's like the like a defining god of capitalism. <laughs> we were just talking about if God of War came to the American Pantheon, Walt Disney would be one of the gods Kratos has to fight. God. He would turn he would he would turn him into like a Mickey Mouse style cartoon. That would be like Looney Tunes, like not Looney Tunes, Jesus, like old uh, Mickey Mouse cartoons. Yeah, Steamboat Willie. That or like cool. Disney would morph into various Disney characters. You'd have to fight like Monstro from Pinocchio and like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and shit, the Dragon from Sleeping Beauty. That would be kind of cool. It would be cool. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I just I love that sequence. Uh, Travers is not entertained or amused. Nope. And Disney has his work <laughs> cut out for him. Yeah. Um, I really like... Um, I, I've, I've talked about it when we're talking about the movie scene. But the scene where she finally breaks and gives in to the movie for a second uh, while listening to Let's Fly a Kite and she starts dancing. That's such a cute scene. Made me smile. Yeah, that is nice. It's not, like they finally got through. Mm-hmm. Which was yeah, that was touching. Yeah. Um, I like when Walt goes to her uh her house and she, like she's like, What are you doing here? And he's like, I don't give up that easily. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, Walt. Yeah, um good. and 
he kind of tells her like, you know, I've, I figured out like, you know, it's Mary Poppins isn't there to save the kids. He's there to save the, like, it's the father. It's your mm. father. Like she, he figured out the problem here and they kind of talk through it a bit. Yeah. And he assures her that, you know, I understand what you're going through. I will not let this go wrong. Like you can trust me. And that was, that was nice. It's touching. I wonder if that question really happened. I, I hate to be the freaking glass half empty negative Nancy here, but I would probably say no. <laughs> I bet she left England and I still went ahead and made the movie. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they sent like, you know, some Disney goons to like force her to sign those papers. Probably. Yeah. Well, like, we played nice and you said no. So now we got to do it the Disney way. Um, Another scene, the scene that always, I guess I say always makes me cry, but it, I, I, my eyes got watery on this watch. Um, but it's when she's watching the movie and she keeps having, you know, it flips between her watching the movie, the movie and flashbacks from her past about her father. And she starts crying. Mr. Bank Banks is walking into the fog. Oh my God. It's such a well-made scene. I love when Walt like pats her on the shoulder and is like, you see, we, we did it. Like he's, he's been saved. And she's like, I, I'm, I just can't, I just hate cartoons. And he just sits back like, <laughs> he's like, he's so done. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's some, some moments. This, I never really thought this story needed to be told, but I'm glad it was. Yeah. It's touching. Yeah. It really is. I'm glad it's told. Um, I'm glad we did this movie for this show. Um, it's cool to see like how adaptations, it puts another spin on how adaptations are. You know? Yeah. Sometimes the story of the, of making the movie can be as fascinating as the movie itself. And those are always such cool stories. We've covered a few of them now. And I don't really count Shadow of the Vampire. I guess. <laughs> but yeah. I don't think it was that interesting. Um, but you know, it's neat to see people realize their dreams mm. in one way or another. Sometimes they're nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, let's take a look at what Letterboxd has to say about this movie. <laughs> On our final segment, what's in the box? Saving Mr. Banks has a 3.5 out of 5 on Letterboxd, which is really Oh, wow. Okay. Way higher than I expected. Yeah. Wow. What the hell? I know. That's really high. Mm-hmm. I've got four for you here, all pretty negative. Uh, the last one I think you were going to love, considering the conversation we had earlier about the old ones. <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that. <laughs> this first one's from Will Sloan. Disney should make a sequel with its Marvel division about the inspirational true story of Stan Lee cheating Jack Kirby out of royalties. One star. <laughs> and I know that they're probably joking, but yeah, I think they should make that movie. <laughs> uh, one day. It'll be called Saving Spider-Man or something. I don't know. Oh Saving God. Tony Stark. <laughs> uh, this next one's from Keith. Not to be a Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> but while the present day scenes of the iconic songs and scripts being fleshed out in the writer's room over the objections of the obstinate Miss Travers are enjoyable, 
The childhood flashbacks, which make up half of the runtime, are excruciating maudlin Hallmark tripe. And at one point, Miss Travers literally embraces a giant stuffed mouse because metaphor. Two and a half stars. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely heavy on the metaphor. This was a good movie to start getting Caitlin into um, analyzing film. Because she was like, oh, that's like her like embracing Disney and being okay with it. And I was like, yes, good job. don't be the don't don't be too snobby trust me you will you will make her not think this is fun oh i'm not i'm not not. (laughs) it's a fine line i've had to do that with a lot of you guys i've had moments where i wanted to be like yeah no shit but i can't do that (laughs) please tell me (laughs) we've gotten to the point where i i will say that now but early on it was like i don't want to I don't want to make him feel undervalued. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This one's from Angelo Moretta. Did you know that the story about a magic governess saving a bad father was really a story about a magic governess saving a bad father? This is one of the most fascinating bad movies about interpretation I've seen in some time, insofar as it has the balls to present a completely rote literal reading of Mary Poppins as one deep psychoanalysis and two, an ethical corrective to a wrong reading of same presented as, quote, the popular misconception when literally the only person in the history of reading or viewing Mary Poppins who holds the the misconception is a straw man character in this very film. This would be like if Room 237 began with a man representing the audience saying The Shining was about oranges and the rest of the film earnestly sought to disprove his point. One and a half stars. If I ever sound like that, um, kick me off the show and the upcoming project that I'm talking about. Um, tell me that we need to pull the plug because that's just like someone using a lot of big words to sound smart. Ethical corrective, deep psychoanalysis, straw man character. Somebody went to film school. Oh, somebody did. Um, yeah, I hope it never sound like that. And also, my first time watching Mary Poppins, I did not know that it was all really about Mr. Banks. I did not know that. Okay. I was young. Yeah. My, most people see Mary Poppins for the first time when they're like between the ages of like two and 10. So yeah, I hope not. If you're not, if you're like five years old and saying like, this is about him being a bad dad, right? Daddy, you have a genius (laughs) child and you better get them in the No. So (laughs) shut up. Okay. Jesus. (laughs) Christ. See, now I feel bad because I because she was like, oh, she's embracing Disney. And I was like, yep, good job. Now I feel like I sounded like that fucking who are the fuck wrote that review. God damn it. I was trying to be funny. I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a fine line between, you know, making a joke and looking like a prick when it comes to this stuff. It's really you got to know you got to pick your moments. Yep. You got to pick your tone. That's the biggest part. Pick your tone. Pick the tone. Yep. <laughs> Oh my god, dude. What the fuck do you mean? I know, right? Why are you analyzing this movie that hard? What are you proving? Who is this for? My god. This <laughs> not, yeah, this is not, you know, Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows. Like, this is a movie about the making of Mary Poppins. Let's all chill. Yeah, this movie is about Mary Poppins. <laughs> this last one, I don't know what the hell this dude was smoking or how he saw any of this in this movie. I hope to god this is a troll. This is Ben Nash. This isn't a movie. It's the goddamn Necronomicon. It's an apocalyptic manifesto foretelling the rise of the eldritch monstrosity that will eat our civilization. 
a pain to the deceitful, unscrupulous attempts of the world's biggest snake oil merchant to undermine one woman's personal artistic vision in the name of the almighty dollar. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be half a star. What the fuck is this guy on? Someone's a communist. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Don't watch Mary Poppins and do peyote at the same time. You will fuck your brain into oblivion and come away with some very interesting thoughts. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> I mean, okay. As 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 good as this movie is, that guy definitely does have a point. Yes, it is one hundred percent big corporation stealing a woman's you know idea, and that's really what happened. But just watch the movie. Well, stealing, he didn't steal it. They paid her. Yeah, like, they paid her. This she agreed to do this. This is not like they made a movie called you know, I don't know, Barry Troppins. And said, they didn't make a movie called Manny, Manny and Nanny McPhee, and they didn't make her ugly and make her more beautiful as time went on. They didn't They didn't do a, a Nosferatu Dracula. That's a good point. They actually I forgot about Nanny McPhee. They did. They did. Some other studio did do that. Yeah. How did we get through this entire show without talking about Nanny McPhee? I Because honestly, I forgot about that. I've never seen Nanny McPhee, but I know about it. You've never seen Nanny McPhee? I've not seen Nanny McPhee. And it's Emma Thompson as well. It's the same actress. It is. I wonder how many times we can say Nanny McPhee. Um, we, I don't know. We just said it a lot. It started to sound funny. Um, oh, I thought like if you, I thought it was like Beetlejuice. If you say a certain amount of times, she shows up or something. No. Um, if you've never seen, it, it's literally Mary Poppins, except she's ugly, and the better child you are, she gets less ugly. That's and message. And her thing is, she's only there when you don't want her to be there. So when you start to like her, she goes away forever. So she's like Bizarro, Mary Poppins. Basically, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> well, I'll watch that movie eventually. Don't. No. Okay. <laughs> uh. Well, that's yeah. That's that's what's in the box. A lot of weird Lovecraftian hatred. <laughs> yeah. There isn't a lot of Google reviews. The only Google reviews I saw was like Disney bad, which. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree, but also, you know, they gave me the Lion King, so I will. I'll go to bat when I have to. Mm -hmm. It's like when a you know somebody you hate did you a a favor one day once upon a time, and you like you kind of respect them for that. You still yeah. hate them, but you know they helped you out of a jam once when you were young, and you you got to give them props for that. Yeah, it's like finding out that Harry Osborne raped some women. Oh boy. Yep. James Franco's a rapist. Walt Disney's a Nazi. We are learning things on this. We show. are learning. Yeah. Max Shrek is a vampire. Canada. We're learning all sorts of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that wraps it up for us today. This was a blast. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like the show, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Filmgasm Productions. If you want to suggest films for us to check out, you can email us at filmgasm at gmail.com. Or send us a message through the socials. Check out our Letterboxd accounts for daily reviews. If you search for me at Connor95 and in my friends list, you can find the rest of the team. Check out the website, filmgasm.com, where I have a link to that letterbox. You can also find articles, trailers of upcoming films, and every episode of our show. If you'd like to become a monthly donor to Filmgasm Productions, click on the link in the episode description. From there, click on Support This Podcast. 
You can choose to donate a dollar a month, $5 a month, or $10 a month, and all donations go right back into the show. Thanks to the entire Filmgasm team for their contributions. Thanks to Cooley Cow for our awesome theme music. Thanks to you for checking it out. Remember that we aren't defined by our traumas, but by how we respond to them. Take it easy. Keep watching movies. We'll see you next time. Thank you.